You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Wow, look at all these people. Greetings, everybody. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to yet another installment of City Lights Live, the online component of the City Lights events calendar. As is customary before each event, I'd like to remind everyone we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. I'd like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Tonight, we are delighted to be hosting Robert Lopez in conversation with Sarah Rose Etter together with our friends at the Ever Groovy $2 Radio. We are celebrating the publication of Dispatches from Puerto Nowhere, an American story of assimilation and erasure, the new book by Robert Lopez. In it, he paints a compassionate portrait of his family's arrival in the US and the consequences of decades of cultural assimilation. He attempts to bridge the past of the present and reclaim a heritage threatened by assimilation and erasure. Dispatches is as much a detective story as it is a meditation on identity. It is solid and layered storytelling with which Robert Lopez displays his prowess as a wordsmith. Robert Lopez is the author of the novels Part of the World and Cambi Bolongo Mean River. He is also the author of two story collections, Asunder and Good People, and a novel in stories titled A Better Class of People. His writing has appeared in dozens of publications, including Bomb, The Three Penny Review, Vice Magazine, amongst others. He teaches at Stony Brook University and makes his home in Brooklyn, New York. Joining him tonight is Sarah Rose Etter the author of Tongue Party and the Book of X. Her work has appeared in The Cut, Electric Literature, Vice, Guernica, as well as many other outlets. Her new novel titled Ripe will be published in the summer of 2023 by $2 Radio. Sarah Rosetter makes her home in San Francisco. Before we begin, I would like to let you know we're going to be posting links in the chat function of Resume Dashboard with which you may purchase books. We'll also be hosting a Q&A, so please, I'd like to encourage you to post your questions and comments in the chat function. So please join us now in giving a warm welcome to Robert Lopez and Sarah Rose Etter. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. Thank you all for tuning in. Um, and what I'm gonna do is just read a couple little bits from the book and then we'll talk and then we'll do something else with ourselves. Um, okay, so this uh, is the very beginning. What I don't know about my family is almost everything. I don't know when or why my grandfather left Puerto Rico, although I can make assumptions about jobs and opportunity and the nebulous better way of life that can be applied to countless immigrants. I don't know anything about his family, if he had brothers or sisters, who his parents were, or what they did for a living. I don't know if he left anyone behind on the island to come to Brooklyn. I never asked questions, and no one in my family told those kinds of stories. I know less about my grandmother. I do know she was born in New York City, but I know nothing of her parents. I remember hearing that one was from Spain and the other from Cuba, but I don't know which was which or why they immigrated to the U.S. 
Nothing was passed down, not the language, not the food or music or the family history. Everything was erased. I don't know what my father knew about his heritage. I don't know if he ever met his grandparents or knew anything about them. I don't know if he ever went to Puerto Rico or heard stories about his father's life there. The story my father told our family was that he understood his parents' Spanish growing up, but would respond in English. I never saw any evidence that my father understood Spanish. An immigrant is a person who has come to live permanently in a foreign country. If you stand in exactly the right spot in Brooklyn Heights with a good pair of binoculars, you can't come close to seeing Puerto Rico. What in this life is permanent when everything is foreign? Cultural assimilation is when individuals or groups of differing heritage are absorbed into the dominant culture of a society. The process involves taking on the traits of the dominant culture to such a degree that the assimilating group becomes socially indistinguishable from other members of the society. Here in the United States, they become whitewashed. It's rare for a minority group to replace its previous cultural practices completely, particularly during the last 50 years. But before that, it happened all the time. Puerto Rico has been part of the United States since Woodrow Wilson signed the Jones-Shafroth Act in 1917. But Puerto Rico has never really been part of the United States and no one thinks of Puerto Rico as part of the United States. So I think of my grandfather as an immigrant. I go back and forth with what I've lost through erasure and what I've gained by assimilation and what it all means. The back and forth is like a tennis rally and how different shots behave on the court. Mario's flat backhand will rush through the air and stay low, whereas the topspin Teddy puts on his forehand will have the ball kangaroo past shoulder level. Wayne's backhand slice skids off the ground and eats you up if you're not ready for it. In Brooklyn, I live in the American melting pot exemplified by the diverse tennis community of which I'm a part. Most everyone has a history or at least a mythology the stories we tell each other and ourselves, idealized narratives that we can talk about during changeovers and water breaks. Even I play the game, but it's a hollowed out mythology when I tell it and almost entirely a fiction. I sometimes tell them that my grandfather was a house painter or guitarist for Tito Puente, that he toured the country and Latin America until it was time to get married and raise children. But I can also say, that he was a longshoreman or boxer who had two or three families and was an absentee father and grandfather, which was why my own father never learned Spanish and neither did I. My grandmother never taught me any Spanish, but said I should learn in school. The example she provided to underscore the importance of learning Spanish had to do with her experience riding a subway and overhearing two men planning some sort of crime. She found a cop on the platform and ratted the would-be criminals out. And this is why I should learn the language. My grandmother was earnest in this advice. There was no other reason to learn or speak Spanish. And I'm going to stop there. Thank you. It was a beautiful reading. Thank you.
happy release week. I know you're very busy this week with so many things to do, but it's so nice to get a chance to talk to you about this beautiful book. I really, really loved it. Um, and thanks. The reading was so nice too. I don't know if I've ever gotten to hear you read before. So this was like a nice treat for me. <laughs> well, thank you, Sarah, for doing this with me. I yeah. really appreciate it. Of course. All right. So um, I have a ton of hardball questions for you. I'm really going to put you in the hot seat about everything. I'm kidding. It's not going to be. <laughs> um, I actually wanted to start um, talking about this from a craft perspective, because I think, you know, we've talked about this a lot as friends um, coming to the work in an experimental way. And I saw that really shining through. So I wanted to talk a little bit about when did you write the first dis dispatch? And when did you decide that they were dispatches? Like what, what drew you to that as a form? Well, what's really interesting is that the very first thing I wrote for the book was an essay, a braided essay, and a meditation on the word spick, um, where it came from and how it uh, was used in my life when I was a kid and how some kids use it as an insult. And then later on, we all refer to each other in, in those sort of ethnic derogatory terms. Um, and so it was, it was a one-off essay on that. I was just giving that a kind of spin to see what I could do with it. And then eventually I, um, wrote another piece that had something to do with something or other. And I can't quite remember the evolution of it all, but I was talking about a disconnect from the culture and heritage that I, you know, should have been a birthright. And, um, the, they were all individual graded essays mm -hmm. and they weren't the short little dispatches that the final form took eventually. And that came about when um, our mutual uh, editor extraordinaire, Eric Obanoff, he suggested, what if this is a book length essay instead of a, a collection of essays? I said, oh, that's a really cool idea. And so I, I got to, I was, so let me see what I could do with it. And I played around with the idea of stretching this work out and making it a book length essay. And by doing that over and over again and, and playing with the, the various subject matter of, of the individual essays and seeing where the connective threads were, I, um, I came up with short chapters for the most part. And that's all they were. They were untitled short chapters. And it was very late in the process. Almost, you know, maybe, God, a, a year of working on the book with Eric and Eliza that I, uh, that it came to me, that, ooh, I should title each one, each one a different dispatch. And that was kind of a eureka moment for me. And, and, and uh, it was really the best fun I had during the whole process. So, okay, so I have so many things to say about this. I love it because I always feel like sometimes the best ideas happen like right when you're at printer deadline and they're like, we are yeah. sending this thing. And you're like, wait a minute, I just figured this whole thing out. <laughs> so goofy. So I actually love that that was kind of like your finishing. I almost feel like it had to be assembled before you could find that as a way to connect them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think it did have to be assembled that way because it, it you know, I, I never have any ideas as to form or, you know, even for the most part, subject matter. And it's just in the writing that you discover it. And then once it presents itself to you, then you kind of figure out how it's supposed to go. But unless you start, you can't possibly know. At least that's been my experience. 
So did you, did the, so was this always the title then or no? It, yeah, the title was always Dispatches from Puerto okay. Nova. One of the original essays, um, I think that one got published in Long Reads, if I can remember correctly, was called Dispatch from ah. Puerto Nowhere. Okay. So, yeah, I always had that as a title. And then once there were more pieces, I knew the book was going to be called that. I also love that, uh, you know, they come from dispatches from real plays, but then they're from the moon. It's just that it, I can see you like playing there and having a lot of fun. So I love that. I'm going to ask one really nerdy question because I have this idea of you editing this and I'm like, are you color coding while you're pulling these threads together? How are you laying it? Are you on like on the floor and they're all printed out? Are you like, how are you managing this? Are you using a software? What's your process when it's time to go from like giant essay down to we're going to do these clumps in this order and shift it around? Um, that is a really good question. And I wish I was somebody who um, paid a little bit more attention to what, I feel like I go into some sort of trance or some sort of alternate state when I'm working and I can't retain the, the, the whys and wherefores as to how I've gotten there. From what I could remember though, is that, I just read it over and over again. So had the individual pieces and then, I, okay, how can I, basically it was, okay, I've got the first few lines of the first piece and then I'm gonna introduce another essay into there and start a new thread and then keep going with that one, then insert another new thread and then see if I could braid them together. So. What started off as braided essays became just like a super braided essay. And uh, I, I can't remember the evolution of how to get it down into more cohesive, digestible chunks, but uh, it seemed to have happened. That's, <laughs> it seems to me that it might have happened and been published. <laughs> That's yeah. incredible. No, I do know what you mean. There is sometimes like a, an almost blacking out during the process and everyone wants you to say something so like, moving or this technique or I did this thing and it's like sometimes you're like I don't know what I did I, but somebody did the work and uh, thanks to them I'm here um I was curious though there's a lot of research and I think this is something that I I loved when I read your book because I was sitting there thinking like oh god you and I like love to have a long ass source page and I know that Eric and Aliza were probably like fact checking you. <laughs> I got fact checked so hard. I know you probably <laughs> did too. So I did want to talk a little bit about what your research process looked like and kind of how you dug into all the facts that you have um, throughout. Um, well, the research, uh, you know, took the form of, you know, I, I got a bunch of books from libraries and things of that nature. I bought some books um, on Puerto Rico and the history of Puerto Rico and um, so I read a lot and I have to say too, you know, in the, um, acknowledgements of the book, I, I call it a collaborative effort because Eliza found some great stuff for me out there. You know, when I, when I read, uh, when you know, I came up with the bit, of course, that my, um, late friend, Paulie Heaney, when he was killed by a uh, police in Wisconsin, I, you know, had that piece that I wrote. And Eliza went out and found this amazing material about um, some uh, Puerto Ricans in New York who were killed by police in the 50s. Wow. And so she sent over those newspaper accounts and, and so I could weave that kind of uh, material. And so it was really quite a, a collaborative process with the research. 
And there were so many, like you said, the fact checking, you know, there's no playing around with that because, you know, we're fiction writers. And so, you know, kind of, hey, let's just make it up a little well, bit. We'll figure it out later. And then later comes and we're like, oh. <laughs> um, but, you know, so you have to uh, respect that, respect, you know, that we have to make it factual and accurate. And um, yeah, so it was a, a process and it was enjoyable to do that because, you know, people, you know, we call the book a memoir and there is a lot of, uh, you know, my, how I, certain things of what I've done and how I've thought. But when I think of most memoir, I think of, you know, somebody going in a linear fashion, like this happened to me and then that happened to me. And then this led into that. And it becomes this very kind of uh, linear causal thing. And that's never been how I've thought about my life and my experiences. And that's not how I view things. So I never could imagine that as being part of something I was trying to do on the page. And thus the research, the, the reportage, if you will, um, was really important to for me to put that in the book because I wanted to look without as much as I was looking within. That's a beautiful way to put it. It really, really is. I was wondering too, were there any books you were reading while you wrote this or books that you felt like that you wanted to be in conversation with, like any memoirs that were fragmented or braided or any like experimental fiction books that you felt like you wanted to call in? Well, yeah, I mean, when I started writing this nonfiction and I was thinking about, okay, this is something I want to do, I, I, I read a lot of nonfiction. Um, so I, I read people like Vivian Gornick and, and Abigail Thomas, and um, I, I read so much, I, all of Eula Biss, all of Maggie Nelson. Um, and so, yeah, reading John Degada was also, reading his books helped quite a lot. and. By doing all of that work and seeing what people have done with nonfiction and how you could break rules and how you could fragment and how you could be personal and be sort of a, a journalist at the same time, it, it was both. That was some of the most fun I had during the entire process was was reading all those writers. So I have to ask this because the thing that's so fascinating about this book and that I'll never get over is the parts that you invented for lack of information, um, especially around your grandfather, these very beautiful touching scenes that just are, you know, clearly almost like a tribute to someone that might not have been that way, which is it's such a beautiful way to see somebody. It's like the most, almost the most beautiful way you can see someone is like not the way they really are. Is that sickening right. to say? But it made me think of two things. Um, one, I did think of Nelson because of the fragment, like the fragments. Um, but I also thought of this book by, I think her name's Lauren Slater called Lying. And she's writing a memoir about being a liar. And it's very hard to tell what of the memoir is truth and it's very Ooh. it's great if you need it it's a good recommendation if you want to read lying um but this does kind of lead into this question of like how did you come up with the parts for your grandfather um in the absence of having a lot of knowledge about him and and that well you know one of the few things that i remember about him um was that he had the guitar and the um, uh, a keyboard in the apartment. I really don't remember him playing much at all, um, mm -hmm. but I do remember that they were there. 
And so it just, okay, that sparkled. You know, what if in this, in an alternative way, in a different life, a different imagination, he was some kind of prodigy? What if he played music and, and toured with Tito Puente and, and, and a, a young Andre Segovia, one of the greatest guitarists ever, he actually went to um, Puerto Rico from Spain to, to study from, um, from Sixto. <laughs> Um, I, so thinking about those kind of things um, based on the little I did know about him, because, you know, I, I knew the man. I was 16 when he died and he, he wasn't a, a mythological figure to me. I, I, you know, I had meals with him and, and uh, you know, watched the love boat when he and my grandmother babysat for us on Saturday nights when we were, you know, my sister and I were seven or eight years old. And um, so. He uh, he was real, but always to me out of reach. Mm -hmm. And so coming up with those kind of romantic ideas of who he could have been and was was fun. I thought it also provided some a dynamic texture to the book. And part, you know, there's a couple of little things about maybe you know maybe he was some sort of criminal figure. Maybe he um, was a con man, and that's because I've always wanted to be a con man. Um, I watched The Sting with Paul Newman and, and Robert Redford maybe 500 times when I was young. And my friend John and I, we would practice cheating uh, uh, at cards on each other. Um, and, and all with the design on one day being um, a great con men. And um, so, yeah, this, so not only it's an alternate history for him, it's all based on me too. That, that you know, the kind of life that maybe I, uh, in a in a different time, different world, different circumstances might, you know, might engage in. Or maybe some of the lineage you wish, if you could have chosen, you might, you know, maybe I would have picked to have the mobster grandpa who was, you know, always up to something. And yeah, you know, yeah. It, it sounds like material and it sounds romantic to me. <laughs> you know, all kinds also, of stuff. I also loved how it managed to be fantastical in a way, but it didn't break the reality of you know if he did become a famous guitarist we would know we would be able to find him so it's better that he becomes the guy that was almost a famous guitarist right yeah with the famous guitarist because then you know it still like fits the narrative of reality you know yeah and you know it's funny because one thing I really appreciated about working with Eliza and Eric is that they allowed me to to do some some stuff that was so I cite a journalist named Diego Goldstein, um, who wrote a piece on Sixto in 1920-something about his prowess. There is no, I mean, I'm Diego Goldstein. And it, it was a it was a, a an alias that I've used in the past. Um, I've published one or two pieces under that name. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I made him um, a journalist from the 19, you know, whatever. And uh, I was glad that we were allowed, we, we allowed that to happen. I love that you just revealed this giant Easter egg exclusively to this Zoom call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you are <laughs> made an assumed identity to create works that you later cited. I love it. It folds back in on itself in such a nice way. Um, this is a goofy question. It's just for me to know. <laughs> I'm pretending no one's here. I'm like, I just need to know this. 
did you get caught up in whether this would be fiction or nonfiction? Like, did it ever cross your mind? Because it walks that line. Like some of the times I was like, I wish we didn't have these labels at all because this is somewhere new. And so I wondered if that ever, it ever crossed your mind to publish it as fiction or if that felt. No, it never did. And, and, and it's because every fiction I've ever written has always come from sentences. So I've never had an idea to write, oh, I want to write a story or a novel about this, that, or the other. It's always come from, from single lines, one sentence. And, and with this nonfiction, there, was, there were ideas at the genesis of it. And since I don't know how to do an idea-driven fiction, I, I knew immediately that it was going to be nonfiction. And I wanted to write nonfiction. After years of doing fiction, um, it felt like I wanted to try something different. So yeah, it was always going to be nonfiction. When I've had fiction friends jump into the world of nonfiction, after they get fact-checked, they're usually like, I'm never doing this again. Are you, <laughs> like, are you like, this is the only nonfiction book I'm ever going to do? Or are you... I, I'm willing to do it again, um, depending on, on the, the project. And the, uh, yeah, if something presents itself that, that works for me and gets me excited, I could see doing nonfiction again. What's funny is that Abigail Thomas, um, who wrote probably three or four books of fiction, both novels and stories, um, she told me in an email that once nonfiction grabs a hold of you, it never lets you go. Wow. Um, and she has written solely nonfiction since she started with it um, back in the 90s. Yeah. That kind of scares me, the idea that like you would be fact checked until you die. I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, we no, the, 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 it is it is a completely different experience for for somebody who's never had any sort of fact checking before. Also, the scale is so different because it's one thing to get fact checked for one essay. Right. Now you're getting fact checked for hundreds of pages and you're like, you know, it's, it is a crazy process for sure. Yeah. And you know, it's funny that you mentioned this and I haven't thought of it. So I had two of these pieces that we were talking about originally, the, um, the braided essays appeared in the sun, right. Which is a really cool publication and they fact checked. So there's a bit about uh, a Mets player named Todd Frazier who hit a home run into, and I describe it as the half empty bleachers. Yeah. And to me, that's just, you know, that's what I said. That's fine. They came back to me. They actually tracked down the tape no. of that home run on that one day from a game three or four years before. And they said, actually, the bleachers were full. And I'm like, who, give, who cares? I swear um, to you. Okay. There's there's something happening here because some I, I remember one time Kent sent me a version of the new book and he was like I want you to know this time when I edited it I was acting like the guy you hate going to the movies with who's always like that would never happen in reality <laughs> spaceships don't make that sound and he did and I was like I'm gonna murder him. <laughs> I'm right. gonna, I, this is the most annoying editing of all time I kind yeah. of screamed I'm sorry I'm so childish if they like, yeah, I know I mean you know to me half empty bleachers sounded good it's and they so wanted to change it to to you know bleach you know full bleachers or bleachers full of fans or some shit like that and I was like no that's not how this should go and so I think I switched it back I saw you uh, no you did I you 100% okay. switched it back which is yeah. hilarious to me um yeah. 
Okay, so I do have some questions that aren't about craft. So okay. there were two things that jumped out to me. Um, one is, you know, this way that you have in the writing, and I think you mentioned this as a technique, but then the way that you execute it is like really beautiful, but brutal of both looking and not looking at something, whether that's through like disclosing that a friend was murdered by the police and then immediately switching to talking about tennis in a way that um, it's like, you're kind of shooting someone in the heart with an arrow and then like immediately changing the subject. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that as a technique um, for you and kind of how you arrived at it. Um, yeah, I, it's funny the way tennis works in the book, right? Because, and again, this was something that apparently was on a subconscious level or an intuitive level that I was never quite fully aware of as I was working on it. But it occurred to me later that there's all the, so much about the family stuff is all about disconnect and all about not feeling uh, a part of something. And, and so when I talk about the tennis and my tennis community here in Brooklyn, it is about that connection, about having a connection with these people and with the sport and a common language that we, with, that we share. Um, and putting those two things together is kind of a juxtaposition. And it, it always feels to me like that's, uh, that's the way the book should have happened. And so when writing the piece about Polly, it always had tennis in it because you know all of that in the beginning of that piece is true is that, and that's I think true of all of us. Like you have this horrible news that you, that you get and you feel like, okay, the world's changed. Everything's different now in some way, in a lot of ways, depending on the, you know, the, the, the loss that we're talking about. And but then you have to, you know, eat a sandwich and you have to, you have to take a shower and, and you have to do all of these mundane quotidian things because that's what you do. Like, you know, you, you live and you keep living. And, but it also has always felt absurd to me that, you know, when, when you have something that heavy hanging over you to do something that is so routine that uh, it feels almost like a betrayal in some way. and. So presenting the essay in that fashion where talking about what happened to Polly and then putting tennis right up against it was my way of, of, of making this feel like real life. And that, what do you, and I think Andrew Monson kind of mentioned something similar in his blurb is that, you know, what do you do in the face of this, in the face of erasure, in the face of death and grief? Um, you do what you always do. You write, you play tennis, you you eat food and, and you try to live a life. And so I think that's, you know, that's the whys and the wherefores of, you know, pointing the camera slightly away. I always loved um, in Ray McCarver's last story that he ever wrote, Errand, which is uh, about the death of Chekhov, you know, Chekhov checking into a, uh, a sanatorium where he... Uh, He's dying from tuberculosis. And what Czech, what Carver does in that story is he points the camera on the, the what happens is the doctor is going to treat Chekhov. And he calls down for a, some oxygen to be sent up to the room. And Chekhov, who was a doctor himself, said, don't bother. By the time he gets here, I'll be a corpse. 
And so the doctor ordered champagne and the bellboy brought up the champagne and uh, opened it and Chekhov drinks from it and says, it's been so long since I've had champagne. And then he dies. But instead of keeping the camera there, Carver moves it to the, 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 the aide or the bellhop or the bell, whoever brought the champagne. And, uh, and he's trying to find the cork because it flew out of the bottle and he's got to keep the room tidy. I said, well, that, you know, that's just brilliant. And that, you know, that's what has to happen. That's his job. And so that's how I think about all that jive. Yeah, no, I love that explanation. It also, you know, I think, I think you're with me in often reading works that are in translation. And it's something that I do love often about works in translation is sometimes the most terrifying thing is just right out of frame. Like the things right. that are, you know, they never look directly at the thing. It's always just hovering on the edge. And I feel like you did that so masterfully in this book. And it was, um, it felt so similar to real life that it, um, it be kind of became like an artwork in that way. Um, not that it wasn't already, but like in a real 3D, like, oh, now you're forcing me to feel the sort of stunted grief of someone because I'm just a human and I have to keep being a human, you know? Um, yeah. Someone still has to take the dog out. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Um, the other thing that I, you know, there is obviously, there are threads of grief here, which I thought you painted really, really beautifully. Um, and I noticed that, you know, there's something here as I was reading, you know, BuzzFeed called it this liminal space between cultures and identities that you're working through. And what kind of struck me here was how lonely it felt to be kind of disconnected, not only in some ways from like the family unit, but also from like culture and identity. And I wondered if you were feeling that as you were writing it, is there like, is that something that you associate with the book or do you not really track in that? You know, it's, it's, it's funny, like, you know, when I start writing the book, I just, it's all about the, you know, the art and the craft of it. And I, you know, if I were some sort of method actor, maybe I could feel something, but the only thing I've ever been able to feel from something I've written is, is laughter. So I've made myself laugh um, boatloads of times over the years. And that's not as much in this book, which is a little bit disappointing to me. Um, that there weren't as many opportunities to be dark and funny. It was just basically dark without the funny too often. Um, but yeah, so for me, I, I didn't really feel anything other than the, you know, the, the desire to, to tell this, this narrative in the way that I could tell it with as many holes in the narrative as there are. And at the same time, acknowledging that yeah this is how it's felt to to grow up like this and to miss this key element of what it means to be a person in the world having a family history and and knowing what it is and feeling connected to it and and when you when it's when a when part of your identity has been so ostentatiously removed from your life uh it is uh it's quite a thing and it's something that I've only really come to in the last however many years. It was always part of who I was, but I never spent that much time thinking about it. I didn't certainly dwell on it. And um, 
So to spend as much time with it here is the most I've ever thought about it. Uh, it was just a fact. It was a fact of my life and I took it for granted and it didn't seem abnormal to me to not know anything about my grandfather or not know anything about the culture and language and music and food um, of, of who he was and, and who I am. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I really, obviously in a different way, I, I do wonder if there are more of us who had grandparents pass and we never really got the full story. You know, I, I yeah. always think it's like a giant mystery and sort of a black hole. You know, I'm, I'm like, uh, I don't know. Um, but that doesn't seem to be like most people's experience there. You know, I'm, I'm always shocked when people's grandparents are still alive. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm like, I haven't had a grandparent in a very long time. I don't, you know, um, so I, I really did relate to that. And it's something I feel like, you know, people don't really talk about because in America, it's so family oriented and the family is so important and everybody, it feels like everybody has these beautiful relationships. And it was kind of nice to have someone acknowledge, like sometimes somebody can babysit you every Saturday night and make you watch Love Boat and you yeah. still have no idea what it was like when they grew up or what their life was like or in some cases maybe they're making you watch Lawrence Welk dance show <laughs> as was my case and then you never <laughs> really know you know yeah yeah um so I'm almost to the end of my questions I do have the first I was very pissed off when I learned that I know that you mentioned in another interview that Puerto Rico is generally treated as a non-entity to America but when I read some of the facts in this book, I got so pissed off, like paying the payroll taxes that we pay, mm -hmm. like that is insane. It, I yeah. just wanted to say to you that I hate the government. <laughs> it's more of a comment <laughs> than a question. Um, did you get mad though, while you were like pulling some of these together? Because I can imagine like staying in that space and finding it like fact after fact, you might just like really get pissed off. It, you know, it's certainly, it's, it's more than just aggravating. It, it, it's a travesty how this government has always treated Puerto Rico. And um, yeah, the, you know, there are certain things that should be addressed. And, and it seems pretty, it seems pretty easy to do that sort of thing. Like, you know, if, if we're going to tax the people of Puerto Rico, then they should be able to, to vote for president. They should be able to have represent, uh, representation in Congress. Uh, it just makes sense, right? And um, for, this, for these things not to happen and, and some of the other uh, social issues that um, take place in Puerto Rico, it's, it is a travesty and, and it is vexing as hell um, that this is uh, the reality. Yeah, I, uh, I did feel throughout the book, um, you know, the more that you see all of this evidence and then you start really rooting for the people that are fighting back, you know, like I saw that you started to list out people who were like organizing, you know, to fight back and that, that felt really good. Like, I'm like, yeah, get them. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so I did want to say, like, I thought that you called attention to these issues in like such a beautiful way, um, that was like moving, but also deeply disheartening. And, you know, these systems are so, so brutally fucked <laughs> yeah no they are yeah and uh you know i hope it changes but i'm not optimistic you know i'm with you in that i'm not either yep i wish i was but i you know um it's i was looking forward to trump getting uh, arrested today and i don't Did think he get it's arrested? no Did i don't believe so 
No. I've been tracking the news all day. I haven't seen uh, it. I I do have the final dreaded question. All righty. What are you working on now? <laughs> um, most <laughs> I'm mostly working on my second serve. I, I'm trying to get it. To, <laughs> um. So yeah, uh, work wise, I've got a collaborative project with uh, my good friend Sam Ligon. And we're uh, we're working on something that is a little too premature to talk about out loud. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the thing that I'm presently engaged with. And uh, I'm excited because the collaborative process uh, is not something that we fiction or nonfiction writers get to do so much. And so it's a, it's a, it's great so far. And I'm looking forward to more. Are you allowed to say whether it's nonfiction or not? <laughs> um, it's not fiction. Okay. <laughs> What really? Okay. All yeah. right. Fine. I won't push you because I think it's good energy to hide it until you're ready. So until I'm ready to say it. something more. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. All right. So I think we should maybe open up to it. Anybody have any questions to pop into the chat? Anything we didn't touch on? I could ask you about tennis in the interim because we didn't really like go full into tennis. And that's totally fine. We've we've had a lovely talk. And uh I'm really grateful for everybody who's here. I'm I'm knocked out by like it call out the names of, of friends here and writers I dig and there's too many to say out loud but uh know that I see you all and uh I'm very very grateful to to everybody awesome well thank you so much for allowing me to be part of this congratulations on your beautiful book um and also thanks for being such an engaging interview I feel like I learn from you every time I talk to you so just thank you for sharing that um with everyone. It's really, you're a really special writer and I'm so excited about this book. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. And I want to say that everybody should be on the lookout for Sarah's Ripe um, the summertime. It's going to be here very soon and I can't wait. Thanks, Robert. I hope to see you in person soon. It's been too long. Likewise. And thank you for having us, City Lights. Always a pleasure. Congratulations, Robert. And thank you, Sarah, for doing the honors tonight. Also really looking forward to your book over the summer. A big shout out to Brett and Eric and Eliza at $2 Radio for all that they do. One of the great indie presses of all time. Uh, also want to thank all of you in the audience for joining us tonight. We have posted links in the chat with which you may purchase books. Uh, if you're in the hood, come on down and visit us. We're located in San Francisco's historic North Beach District. We're open seven days a week. Our new hours are Monday through Thursday, 11 to 8, and Friday through Sunday, 11 to 9. So slowly getting back to our pre-pandemic hours. Also want to point out that City Lights is celebrating its 70th anniversary in 2023. We're going to be featuring a special calendar of events beginning in May and running through to the end of the year. It's going to include uh, in-store live events, online. We're going to have poetry readings in Kerouac Alley, historic tours, panel discussions, you name it. Keep an eye on our calendar for pending announcements. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So good night, everyone. Take care. We hope to see you all again soon. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all. Thank you very much. Have a good night, everyone. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, 
check out www.citylights.com events.